Every day that my daughter comes home from preschool, she comes home with this one-page summary sheet uh, that describes her day and communicates things like what she ate that day, which is usually not very much, and how much she slept or any other activities that uh, they did at school that day. And then at the very bottom of the page, there's a list of adjectives that uh, usually several are checked to describe her disposition at school that day. And Ashley and I are continually shocked that one of those adjectives that's checked was that she was quiet. <laughs> because she comes home from, from school and quiet is nowhere in the picture. And we don't, we don't put together, you know, one-page summary sheets of her days uh, at home. If you do that, more power to you than you're on top of parenting. We don't do that at our house. But if we did, I can assure you that quiet uh, would not be checked very often. But kids, and you know this, we know this, often act as if they are tongue-tied around certain people in particular situations. I can't explain it, but I know it's true. To be tongue-tied is to be unable to speak for whatever reason, perhaps out of shyness or embarrassment or um, even surprise. And sometimes to be tongue-tied is is not necessarily a positive thing. In, In certain cases, we might see it as a negative thing, but in other circumstances... Uh, We know it to be a positive thing. And in fact, in our biblical passage for this morning from James chapter 3, we see an example. We see clear instructions for when being tongue-tied as believers in Jesus, as the church, can be seen as a positive thing. Not out of shyness or embarrassment or surprise, but because we have undergone a transformation of heart by knowing and trusting in Jesus Christ. So I want to invite you this morning to look with me at James chapter 3, first 12 verses as we read God's word together, as we continue our, our series entitled Living Faith, as we walk through James and this morning see what what this book, what this short letter has to say about the tongue, about our speech, about our words, how important they are for us as followers of Jesus. So James chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. I think we see a couple of of truths, a couple of sub-truths that are communicated right here in verses 1 and 2. And both of these come together to communicate something about teaching in the life of the church. And specifically, I think uh, these two sub-truths support the idea that teachers in the church should be carefully appointed. Teachers in the church should be carefully appointed. Now this seems obvious enough, we would think. It seems natural that we would be careful who we 
select or appoint or, or allow or choose to, to represent God in essence by teaching and declaring the truths of God from the Word of God. But so often we're, we're so quick to, to throw somebody into a teaching opportunity as soon as someone says, hey, I, I want to teach or, or I'd like to teach. Oh, we'll sign up. We'll, we'll go ahead and, and put you right in, give you some responsibility and, and ask you to to teach others the most important things in life, most important truths available, the truths of, of God and His Word. We don't do this so quickly, at least not most of the time, in the education system. After all, if you might be a bit concerned if you discovered that your your child's elementary school teacher did not have good knowledge of the subject matter or didn't have the proper credentials or training for, for teaching that particular age group or didn't have the best interest of your child and, and their success in school, that would, that would alarm you. That would concern us. But so often in the church, as soon as someone says, hey, I like to teach, we just assume that all those things are in place. We just assume that, that they, they have a love for the Lord. We assume that they know how to, to, to read and to interpret and to study and to apply and to teach God's Word. We assume that they desire to, to lead others to, to grow in their love and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And James is cautioning against this practice in the life of the early church for two reasons. Firstly, because those who teach have great responsibility. Those who teach have great responsibility. Look back at chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. In other words, those who teach the Word of God and the life of the church are accountable before God for rightly and humbly and faithfully teaching and applying the Word of God to other believers. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 12, verse 48. He said, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Those that are called appointed to teach in the life of the church have been entrusted with transmitting right Christian doctrine, with transmitting, with passing along the, the truths about the one and, and only God. For this reason, Paul told young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, he said, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others, passing along the truths about God, trusting them to reliable people, those who are committed to the Lord, those that know Christ, those that have shown characteristics of growing in Christ. Paul also recognized that he was responsible for, for teaching all of God's Word, not for selecting and choosing certain truths that that he thought were more important than others. But he told the, the elders in the Ephesians church, as recorded in Acts chapter 20, verses 26 and 27, he said, 
Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So we ought to be careful as we appoint and select and choose those who we allow to teach in the, in the church. Because teaching is a great responsibility and because we all have a tendency to sin, especially with our speech. We all have a tendency to sin, especially with our speech. And we see this clearly in verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Essentially, this is what James is transitioning in this passage to what I believe is the heart of what he really wants to communicate, what he really wants to say, really wants to caution us against using our speech, against using our words inappropriately. And in essence, he's, he's saying we all have a, a tendency to sin. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who, who never sins via the channel of their speech, via the channel of their tongue, what they say out their mouth, someone who, who doesn't sin that way has, has, got, has got it all figured out. After all, if they can control their tongue, if they can control what they say, then and no doubt they can control the rest of their body too. James has already expressed the concern about improper use of language, about improper control of what we say. In chapter 1, verse 19, he said, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Chapter 1, verse 26, Those who consider themselves religious... And yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Clearly, this is a common thread through through this letter. James is communicating, cautioning against loose speech, cautioning the church to be very, very careful what they allow to come out of their mouths. One scholar said this about this passage, speaking of of speech. He said, So difficult is the mouth to control. So given is it to utter the false, the biting, the slanderous word, so prone to stay open when it were more profitably closed, that the person who has it in control surely has the ability to conquer other less unruly members of the body. In other words, our sin nature our tendency to sin, which is in all of us, readily comes out, quickly comes out, oftentimes through what we say. So we ought to be careful who we allow to teach, who we select to teach. We ourselves ought to be slow to to jump into opportunities to teach without praying and asking the Lord if this is something that God has has gifted us to do and called us to do. We ought to do so because teaching is a great responsibility and because we all have a tendency to sin, especially with our speech. And in the verses that follow in this passage, James takes this truth much broader. gives specific instructions 
not just for those who teach in the church, but for all those who are part of the church as it relates to their speech. So look back at James chapter 3 with me, beginning in verse 3. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. James reveals here in this section, verses 3 through 6, clearly that, that he, like his brother and his Lord Jesus, is a master communicator. Just like Jesus, he employs pictures and illustrations and scenarios to drive home the truths that he's presented. We see three of these here in these verses. And the first is is that of a bit in a horse's mouth. Something small. It's put in a horse's mouth to press against the gum of the horse. Drives the horse in the direction that the rider wants it to go. Secondly, that of... A rudder on a ship. Something else. Very small by comparison to the rest of the boat. Yet the pilot uses the rudder to steer and to control the whole ship. To make it go where he wants it to go. The point is. The size of these things is disproportionate to the influence that they have. In verse 5, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Words, the tongue is, is able to have the same sort of influence for good or for evil as these other things. And I believe that's the point of verses 3 through 6. Our words have incredible influence for good or for evil. What we say, our speech, incredible influence for good, for directing, for controlling, for instructing, or for evil, for criticizing, for tearing down, for boasting about ourselves. Tongues said to make great boasts. Boast here is not used necessarily in the negative sense that it's Most often used in the New Testament, it's simply used to communicate the potential influence that what we say has over the rest of us and over others. The same capacity for influence. And then it goes on and it gives this third illustration. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. If you pay attention to the news and Especially this time of year, when climate is dry, we hear of all sorts of wildfires, particularly out west. We think of California. Look at your news feed, and you'll hear numerous reports of fires and how many acres or how many square square miles that they have burned and how what percentage they are contained. They start from a small spark under the right circumstances. A small spark and lead to a tremendous fire with potentially devastating consequences. 
The first two of these illustrations, the bit and the rudder, used in a positive light, potential for positive influences. Here, clearly, force fire. This is, this is negative. This is negative potential. The tongue also, verse 6, is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Potential to destroy. Few sins that we commit. There are few sins that people commit that don't in some way or another involve what we say. That don't in some way or another include what comes out of our mouth. Essentially, James is saying here that the tongue expresses the wickedness and the evil of the world. Corrupts the whole body. This is the opposite of the picture he gave in chapter 1, verse 27. This is the opposite of the pure and undefiled religion, a pure and faultless religion. The tongue, negative potential. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is a lie. It's not true. Physical wounds heal with time. Wounds caused by words don't, don't always heal. And our speech reveals the condition of our faith in Christ. It reveals the condition of our heart because, because our speech is a barometer of our spirituality. What we say reveals where our heart is, reveals where our affections are, I believe James knows this and understands this and this is what he attempts to, to drive home in the remainder of this passage. Look back at James chapter 3, verse 7. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. There's an allusion here to the creation account. Genesis chapter 1. And God willing, and when we finish James, we're going to be looking at this together. But Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, on the sixth day of creation, we read, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. According to the word of God, Humankind, the crown of God's creation made in His image is entrusted with the rest of creation. Given a place of dominion over the rest of creation. Ruling over the rest of creation as stewards of God's creation. And all kinds of animals and birds and sea creatures and reptiles, James says, have 
have been tamed, domesticated, and are being tamed by men and women today. And if you've been to the circus, you've seen this. Elephants and tigers and monkeys and whatever other circus animals there are. If you've been to SeaWorld, you've seen this. Dolphins and sea lions and orca whales doing things that you're thinking, how in the world did they get that animal to do that? Have you ever been hunting with a bird dog? Then you've seen another example of this. So essentially, God's word is saying all sorts of creatures of the earth have been tamed, have been controlled by, by mankind. Creatures that if they wanted to could stomp on you and swallow you and eat you, but somehow God has allowed men and women to, to tame and to control these teachers. And then he says, but, but men can't tame the tongue. Listen, Impressive as all these other creatures are, the fact that people have been able to domesticate them and train them, teach them, make them do what they want them to do. You and I, left to ourselves, cannot control the tongue. It is too wicked. It too easily expresses the sin nature in each of us, but... The good news is that although we cannot control our tongue, the Spirit of God can. And if you've trusted in Christ for salvation, the Spirit of the Almighty God has taken up residence according to the Word of God in you and begins to transform you more and more into the image of Christ and lead you to do things that are less and less associated with the old life ruled by sin and more and more associated with the things of God. We can't control our tongue, but the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Almighty God within us can. What is an impossibility for us is a possibility for God. I think in this final section, James is communicating that our speech reveals the depth of our sin nature in the present condition of our hearts. Our speech reveals the depth of our sin nature and the present condition of our hearts. Look back at the the final four verses of this passage, beginning in verse 9. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Verses 9 and 10 clearly depict our sin nature. James says that with the mouth, with what we say, with our tongues, we, we praise the Lord, we praise our Father, and then we turn around and, and we curse fellow fellow people. This is the sort of doubleness, double-mindedness that James deplores. He cautioned against in his opening verses of this letter and described the one who 
who oscillates back and forth between faith in God and doubt in God, back and forth, back and forth, can't make up your mind. This is the picture here of one who professes allegiance to the Lord, declares praises to the Lord, professes faith in God, and then goes down and criticizes, puts down, curses, literally wishes harm upon another human being. Another human being that is made in the image of God. Thus tearing that person down, in essence, is like cursing God. Does that make any sense, James says? How can blessing God and cursing God, those made in the image of God, come out of the same mouth? And then he uses these Three final pictures to drive home his point. He says, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? The first is that of a spring of water. In essence, a spring of water is either fresh water or salt water. It doesn't go back and forth between the two. Now, we know that there are certain places where there's sort of brackish water characterized by salt water and fresh water, but... What James is saying is that a spring always produces the same type of water. Likewise, a fig tree doesn't, doesn't bear olives or oranges or apples or bananas or whatever. A fig tree only bears figs. And a grapevine doesn't produce figs. The grapevine only produces olives. So what James is communicating here is that what comes out of our mouth is reflective of who we are. It's reflective of condition of our heart before God. No true believer in Christ, no true follower of Christ can consistently offer up praises to God and then consistently turn around and tear down their fellow man or woman. Can exalt and magnify and declare allegiance to the Lord of Lords, the God of Gods, the King of Kings, and then simply go and put down those that are made in His image. Our speech reveals the condition of our heart. From the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks. So as we reflect on our speech this morning, what does our speech reveal about the condition of our heart? Is what we allow to come out of our tongue, or out of our mouth, is what we say and don't say reflect that that our hearts and our affections are on Jesus Christ. The prophet Ezekiel spoke to God's people the word of the Lord and gave a foretaste, a foreshadow of the coming gospel through Jesus Christ. He wrote this in Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 26. God said, I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. 
Is that description true of you and me this morning? Have we been given a new heart in Christ because we've trusted in Christ for salvation, because we've run after Christ, because we've repented of our sin and embraced Christ? Has the Spirit of God that takes up residence in believers in Jesus moved us to obey the things of God? As we think about the truths of this passage of James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, all that they communicate and all the pictures and scenarios that are used to communicate truths about what we say, I think we could summarize the truths and the subtruths this way in this statement. Because we have a tendency towards sinful speech, we must meticulously watch what we say and diligently select our teachers. I believe that's the heart of what James is saying here. Because we have a tendency towards sinful speech, all of us, we must meticulously, thoroughly, carefully watch what we say, what we allow to come out of our mouths, and diligently select our teachers in the life of the church. So some starting points, some specific starting points for us as we seek to to apply the truths of this passage to our lives today. Firstly, utilize mature believers with the gift of teaching. Utilize mature believers with the gift of teaching in the church. Let's embrace the design of God that clearly communicates in the New Testament that the the church is comprised of of various individuals that are gifted in different ways, spiritually gifted in different ways to come together to serve in the life of the church, to make up a church that is glorifying to, to the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Let's recognize those that clearly have the gift of teaching and that also display characteristics that reveal that they love Christ, that they know Christ, that they are maturing in their walk with Jesus Christ. Let's utilize mature believers with the gift of teaching. And secondly, let's use our words to honor God. Use your words to honor God. We use words and songs and prayers and many things this time of year to, to honor our nation, to honor our leaders, to honor people. And rightly so. That is good. That is a positive thing. Let's also remember that no nation, no land, no people, no representative is worthy of the honor that God is worthy of. That He is infinitely more worthy of phrases and words and songs of praise than than anyone else. The psalmist said, "May, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. May that be true of us. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to the Lord, the rock, the redeemer, the savior, the almighty God, the only one who is worthy of worship and praise. To use our words to honor God. And lastly, fill yourself with the things of God. Fill yourself with the things of God. Our speech reflects the condition of our hearts. It's also true that the condition of our hearts affects what comes out of our mouths. 
condition of our hearts, the condition of our faith before God affects how we use our words. So if we trust and, and follow Jesus, if we do things, all that we can to influence, to rightly influence the condition of our hearts, if we trust and follow Jesus, read and study and apply the word of God, if we meditate on the truths of God, if we, if we listen to the spirit of God, we pray to the Almighty God that then these things will most certainly affect what comes out of our mouths. So let's fill our minds with the things of God. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for another day. Lord, we thank you for another opportunity to gather in your name. Lord, in your honor, to exalt and glorify and magnify to declare praises to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the great I Am, the one who is worthy. Lord, may we do that today and every day as your people. May we use our, our words to declare truths about you, to spread the love of Jesus Christ, to sing praises to you our Father in heaven. Lord, convict us of where we use our words in a way that is not pleasing to you. And transform us by your spirit more and more into your image that we might glorify you, the one and only God. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.